0: Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. Let's lift up our hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ in prayer. Lord Jesus, this we sing and this we pray that all of our hope and all of our trust and all of our boast is in you and in you alone. Our Father in heaven, we appear before you not in our own righteousness but robed in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. We glory and boast this morning not in human strength and surely not in human wisdom. For now in these moments, as we open your word, we repudiate our own paltry thinking which is folly and empty and we would receive your truth which is sweeter than honey and makes us wealthier than gold ever could. Open the eyes of our heart that we might receive your word this morning. For Jesus' sake, amen. 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 We're asking and answering a series of what I believe are important questions. And the question this morning is... What is truth? How do we know what's true? How do we trust the truth? How do we stay confident in the truth? What is truth? I'm going to begin the sermon with a half of a verse, and you can fill in the other half. It's easy. In the beginning. Trick question. Because... Actually, not everyone could be in unison. There could be a cacophony of different sounds, and yet everyone would be possibly correct because there are two biblically correct answers to that question. The one most of you said, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But there's another one in the beginning of the New Testament. In John chapter 1, it says, in the beginning was the word. The logos in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And then it says, everything that was created was created by and in the logos, in the word. So in the beginning, God created, but in the beginning was the word and everything that was created was created by the word. So as we talk about truth Let's put Genesis 1 and John 1 together. In the beginning, God created everything, but in the beginning, God created everything in or with or by the logos, the word of truth. And so when John 1 talks about the logos or the word, actually, when you pay a little more attention to Genesis 1, we'll read from Genesis 1 a little bit, when it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but then it goes on. So in the beginning was the word, the logos, but then it says in Genesis one, God created everything, but then it says that God created everything by speaking a logos, a word, let there be. And then after God created the light, then it says in verse five, a different Hebrew verb, God called or God named or God identified as the light day and the darkness he called or he named night. Then we have God calling again in verse 8. He makes the waters and the expanse. And then verse 8, God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And then God said in verse 9, let the waters under the heavens be gathered in one place. And it was so. Look at verse 10. Two more uses of the word called. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So in the beginning was the Logos, but Genesis 1, God said, let there be light. And then God called the light day. So to all this, we add God creating man. Look at Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them and watch one of the very first tasks that God assigns to the man who's created in his image. Look at Genesis 2. This is an important reference that we skip over sometimes as almost like a something we talk about in the nursery with the little kids, the naming of the animals. Look at this Genesis 2 verse 19. Now, out of the ground, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man. The Hebrew narrative makes it almost playful to see what the man would call them. There's our verb again, would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and the birds of the heaven and every beast of the field. One of the first tasks that God gives the man is to call things by their name. In other words, God tasks the man with understanding and naming and speaking the truth. The process of Adam naming the animals does several things. It serves to differentiate humans from animals Animals don't name things. I presume my dog likes me, but he doesn't have like a pet name for me that he calls me. I call him by his name. I call him by other things when I'm upset with him and by other things when I'm happy with him. But you see, animals don't name humans. Humans name animals. But why do humans name animals? Because the man is made in the image of God. And God said, let there be light. And then God called or named the light as light. So humans name animals not only because we have dominion over the animals, but we name animals and everything else in the world specifically because we're made in the image of God. Adam's naming of the animals in Genesis 2 reflects God's own naming of creation in Genesis 1 which means that God created the world with reality and truth and then God named things by their true names and then God expected the man and subsequently the woman to name things by their true names. At the very genesis of human language, we see God's high calling upon Adam's speech that God delights to see Adam name things truly. So to talk about the truth this morning, I'll give you three points about the truth. The first point is established here from Genesis 1 and John 1. Point one about the truth is this, God created the world with truth and he calls us to speak true words about the world he created. God created the world with truth. God created the world with logos, by logos. God created the world with truth. And he calls us to speak true words about the world he has created. It may sound pretty obvious, but it's far from obvious to the way people think about truth and the world and labels. Because we're answering these questions in a confused and confusing world uh, a point like this has to have a negation to it not just a positive so not only is it the case that God created the world with truth and he calls us to speak true words about the world he has created but the negation added to it is this right reality and truth are created by God not by self When we label things and name things, we do so within the reality that God has created. Reality and truth are created by God, not by the human self. Oh, we name things, but we do so in and with the reality that God has already stitched into the world. The reason this negation is important is because as soon as we start asking the question, what is truth? We have... We operate in a common culture that's addicted to some form of—you uh, could call it perspectivalism, my perspective, your perspective, subjectivism. You call it postmodernism. You call it by a lot of different things, but it's summed up in the phrase, you know, "You've got your truth, and I've got my truth. You've got your truth, and I've got my truth. All you have is your perspective." And so you have your truth and all I have is my perspective and I have my truth. The point is that from Genesis 2 onward, God does not tell anyone to speak your truth. God created the world with truth and God commands everyone everywhere to speak the truth after him and under him and with him. See, this is a world where God made reality and God names reality what it is and so he calls all of us to do the same. The world we live in, the reason this question is so sometimes tricky is because the world we live in believes really what's true for you is true for you and really even more than that, what's true for you is what feels true for you. But the Bible presents a reality in which human beings flourish. When we receive God's truth from him, And then we live in accordance with his truth. Genesis 1 and 2 shows us that the world has a God given nature to it. It's his creation. He made it, he labels it what it is. And we flourish and become less insane when we receive that creational nature and we live according to it. You see, in the world today, creation isn't a given. What's a given is I have to follow my heart and choose to be whatever I want to be and whoever I want to be. This is the message of every Disney film ever made. But the message of Scripture is that creation is given, light is light. Darkness is darkness. We do call the day, day, and we do call the night, night. We do call the land, land, and we call the sea, the sea, because God created reality with truth, and God expects us to follow that truth and to speak truly about the world that he himself created. Either human nature, either human nature is what it is because God created it and labeled it what it is or or what? I suppose we have no such thing as a nature to which we must conform, but instead we just have internal desires that we're subject to. Creation is what it is because God spoke it and God named it. That's the first truth, that God created the world with truth. And he calls us to speak true words about the world he created. For our second truth about truth, let's look at the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. Look at the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus here speaks about the truth of God's word. There are several places where he says this. A stunning one in John chapter 10 when our Lord Jesus says that Scripture cannot be broken. But this one at the outset of the the public proclamation of his ministry in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in John, in Matthew 5, verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish The law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You see what Jesus says there. The truth, the truth revealed in God's Torah, the truth revealed in God's word, the truth revealed in the Bible is such that it will all remain true and it will all be accomplished and whoever relaxes one of them or compromises on one of them will be the least, but whoever does them all will be great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus emphasizes that once the truth of Scripture has been given to us, our greatness consists not in editing it or being compromised with it, but by sticking to it. And I just my sort of take on it through the years is that churches, churches actually think that they will grow bigger and better and more popular by compromising God's truth. They think the way to greatness is to edit and compromise God's truth. But Jesus has said, the way to greatness is the kingdom is to carefully follow everything that he said. Everything that he said. So from the words of Jesus, let's go to the practice of the Apostle Paul and then I'll, and then I'll give you how to write down the second point if you are a compulsive note taker. I've told you this before, you don't have to believe me, but it's a lot more important that you get what's being said here than that you uh, have a recorded record of it. God's truth changes you um, in the moment, on the spot. You don't necessarily have to be able to, to write a memoir about it afterwards. But anyway, I digress. Acts chapter 20, we'll see the practice of Paul when he, when he deals with God's truth. Acts chapter 20. This is So Jesus gave us a little bit of a, you know, bibliology. Here we, we, have a, we have a method of truth in ministry, but it's just narrated by Paul as this is the way I did it. This is the way that he did it. Acts chapter 20, picking it up in verse 20. Acts chapter 20, picking it up in verse 20. G, uh, Paul says that, you know, he, he calls the elders of Miletus to him. And he says, I was with you the whole time in verse 18. And he says, I was serving the Lord. And then he says in verse 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says the truth is such that it can be proclaimed one to many in public. The truth is such that it can be be proclaimed from house to house. And also significantly in our day of confused contextualism. Paul says here, the truth is such that it's the same for Jews and for Gentiles. I declared it the same truth to everyone. Verse 22, now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, imprisonment and affliction await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. To testify is to believe God has revealed the truth and now I receive it and I pass it along to others. That's what it is. That's the name of the game. And he says in verse 25, Now behold, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom are going to see my face again. Verse 26, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. Verse 27, Four. So this is the ground clause. He says, I'm innocent of your blood. And this is why. Four. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That's it. Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And then he warns that wolves are going to come in and they're going to twist things. They're going to, verse 30, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Well, Paul says, I'm innocent of the blood because I carefully stuck with the truth. Wolves are going to come in who twist the truth. And finally then in verse 32, he commends them to God and the word, the logos of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance in the saints. So the practice of Paul is no editing, no holding back, no twisting the truth and then one more place if this is a narrative of how Paul did it if you turn to 1 Timothy 3:15 you'll see a prescription of how we're supposed to do it so the book of Acts in many ways is a description of how Paul did it the epistles are a prescription for how churches are supposed to do it and so from the description in Acts we move to a prescription of what the church is supposed to be in 1 Timothy 3 verse 15 Verse, 1 Timothy 3, verse 15. He says, this is why I'm writing this letter and giving you these instructions. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress or support of the truth. The church of the living God, I love that. He's God who's alive. He's not dead. He's not frozen in words on a page. He's the living God. And yet, the job of the church to promote that living God and to testify to that living God is to be the pillar and the support of the truth articulately. The church is the pillar and support of the truth. In other words, the church is not a weather vane, the church is a granite column. The church is not a digital sign. It can change what it says Monday and then Friday and then the next week and the next week. The church is the the tablets of stone in which the truth was engraved, unchanging for all time. So our second truth about the church, our second truth about the truth is simply this. God reveals truth in his word and he calls us to believe it ourselves and then share it with others. That's what Jesus said in Matthew. That's what Paul did in Acts 20. That's what Paul prescribes every church member to do in 1 Timothy 3. The the second truth about the truth is God reveals truth in his word and calls us to believe it ourselves and share it with others. He calls us to believe it ourselves and share it with others. So the negation of this truth, because we live in a confused and confusing world, To back this second truth about truth up, the negation would be what? We don't edit it and we don't change it. We don't edit it and we don't change it. God reveals truth in His Word and He calls us to believe it ourselves and share it with those around us. We don't edit it, nor do we change it. Paul says in Acts 20, I didn't shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. We didn't pick and choose, we didn't edit it. Every church must decide just as every Christian must decide, every church must decide and every Christian man and Christian woman, every Christian middle schooler and high schooler must decide. Do do I honor God by receiving everything that he has said, believing everything he has said and then sharing everything he has said with others? Or, or do I try to make my own way to give people what they want and stay on the good side of everybody around me. Which is it? Do we give the people what they want? Do we give them the flavor of the day? Do we edit with slight embarrassment what God has said because it it isn't selling right now? Or are we a pillar and a granite column proclaiming the truth with steadfastness? If you permit me to read a couple of lines from a famous theologian, this is from J.I. Packer. The thing that I love about this is that J.I. Packer wrote this in 2003, 20 years ago. Uh, and this is what he said. To, he, he said, there's, there, there's two ways for the church to handle the truth. One is the historic Christian belief that through the prophets, the incarnate son, the apostles, and the writers of canonical scripture, God has used human language to tell us definitively about his ways, his works, his will, and his worship. That's way number one, meaning God reveals the truth in the Bible, we receive it, and we believe it. That's the first way. The second view, this is interesting, the second view applies to Christianity the Enlightenment's Enlightenment's trust in human reason along with the fashionable evolutionary assumption that the present is always wiser than the past. Isn't that interesting? Along with the fashionable evolutionary assumption that the present is always wiser than the past. It concludes that the world has wisdom and the church must play intellectual catch-up with each generation in order to survive. From this standpoint... Everything in the Bible becomes relative to the church's evolving insights, which themselves are relative to society's continuing development. And then surprisingly, he ends this paragraph, there's a couple more sentences, and he ends this paragraph in 2003 with this. Churches, blessings, same-sex unions are but one example of this. It was 2003 he wrote that. But I, I get his either or there. Either, either the Bible is what judges the contemporary uh, confused machinations of our culture or our contemporary mores and values. They're not virtues. They're just values. Our contemporary values judge what the scripture says, but someone will be evaluated and found wanting either way. Either it's God's word that has to be edited or it's our contemporary culture that has to be corrected. But someone will, will lose either way. Either contemporary feelings or the eternal veritas of God's revealed truth. It's got to be one or the other. The issue is that sometimes churches or Christians, they start to compromise on things and it seems to work. We, we gain a hearing by muting the, the unpopular parts or the parts that don't fit in. But what such embarrassed doctrinal compromise does is it destroys our credibility because the world will soon sniff out that really you're just a salesman. You're not a prophet. You're not a prophet of the living God. You're willing to cut corners to make the sale, and you can't be trusted. Uh, I, I just like this little phrase. J.I. Packer, uh, in that same little article, he he calls that uh, uh, he calls that those who thus debone Christianity. <laughs> we do, we take the hard stick stick in your throat bones out of it just to make it easy for everyone to digest. But those who thus debone Christianity, J.I. Packer says, can never escape the pincer effect of two questions. One, since you believe so much about the Bible, why don't you believe more of it? Question number two, since you believe so little of the Bible, why don't you believe less of it? just think logically that stands if we start deboning it and taking out the parts that our culture doesn't like does not our culture then have the right to counter to, to counter interrogate us and say well if you think the bible's good why don't you take it straight and if you're willing to fudge on this and that well then next month can we get you to give up on this and this and the other the word of god stands as one seamless robe, one unbroken whole. So remember, church, that our precious words in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's our precious truth of the inspiration and the authority of scripture. And that precious truth in 2 Timothy 3, 16, and 17 is given in the context, is given in the context where this phrase comes just about one inch later on the page that I'm reading from. For the time will come when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will acu- accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. Time will come when they'll accumulate teachers who will debone the thing in the, in the proper way to make it a mush that's acceptable to our blind, dumb culture. Settle it in your heart, church. The word of God is profitable, but settle it in your heart. The word of God is not profitable for your popularity. The word of God is not profitable for getting everyone to like you all the time. The word of God is profitable for Teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that we, the church of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work that God has for us to do. And after we have completed those works, God himself will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Settle it in your heart. That's what the word is profitable for and nothing less. We're talking about courage. We're talking about courage. Remember these little lines, I learned them years ago. Courage, brothers, do not stumble. Some will love thee, some will hate thee, some will praise thee, some will slight. Cease from man and look above thee. Trust in God and do what's right. Isaiah said, don't fear the grasshoppers, fear the Lord. So the truth is that God reveals the truth in his word and he calls us to believe it and share it. We do so without editing it or changing it. Those are your first two points. Actually, I just read you a little poem. You get three points in a poem today. The third point is kind of like, well, how, how do we, how, how does this whole thing work in us? And the, the third truth about the truth, this is, this, this is an interesting one. We could, we could simply say it kind of like this. The knowledge of God is a unique form of knowledge. The knowledge of God is a unique form of knowledge. Another way of saying it is it takes God's spirit opening the eyes of the human heart to really receive God's truth, doesn't it? It takes the it takes the Holy Spirit of God opening the eyes of the human heart to really receive God's truth. So that's, that's really the third truth about the truth is that knowledge of God is, is a unique form of knowledge. And God's spirit must open the eyes of the heart to receive this truth. Another way you can say it is God calls us to be humble and obedient to his truth. And it is only when God does a mighty work in the human heart that you can become a humble and obedient person. That's what we're saying. God calls us to be humble and obedient before his truth. And there was no way I could do that on my own. It took the blessed work of Jesus Christ by his spirit to humble me and cause me to obey. We just talked about this because we all go to ABF, right? We just talked about this in 1 John 5, when he's, he keeps saying in there, the testimony of the Spirit, the testimony of the Spirit. It's not, though it's logos, and it makes sense logically, it's not, it's not fixed by, by merely human means. It takes the testifying ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul's at great pains to lay out in 1 Corinthians 2, in 2 Corinthians 4. In 1 Corinthians 2, when he says the natural man cannot understand it. In 2 Corinthians 4, when he says, if anyone's going to see how beautiful Christ is, that the blinding influence of their own sin and of Satan has to be ripped away by God himself saying, Veritas, let there be light. It's in 1 John 5. It's, in first, it's all over 1 and Second Corinthians. It's in, it's in Jesus with Nicodemus saying, you must be born again. So when I say that, that the knowledge of God is a unique form of knowledge, you, you think about it like this. What the Christian faith teaches is reasonable. But Christianity is not merely embraced by the power of human reason. Think about it this way. What the Christian faith teaches, I believe this, what the Christian faith teaches will ultimately be verified by every standard of measurement in the cosmos. What Christianity teaches will ultimately be verified as truth. But Christianity is not embraced because it conforms to a scientifically verifiable data of truth. That's not how it works. In uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, I won't read it, they've got two paragraphs where they lay out how reasonable and rational and understandable the word of God is. And they end that section by saying, nevertheless, the authority of God's truth is embraced by the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness to the human heart. That's what we're saying. That's what we're saying. At the end of the day, the work is done by the Holy Spirit. The sad truth is, and I've gone here with my loved ones who don't believe the Bible. The sad truth is, your unbelief isn't because of a lack of evidence. You can tell yourself that, but your unbelief isn't due to a lack of evidence Your unbelief is due to a motivated rejection that is arising from your heart. And we fast and we pray on our knees that that, that Jesus will give a new heart, a new heart. What does it take to understand the Bible? Do you need the ability to read? No. No. There have been illiterate people through history and there are wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ today who are utterly illiterate. You don't have to be able to read. What does it take to understand the Bible? Super smart, intellectually charged categories? Nope. Otherwise, dopes like you would never make it. What does it take to understand the word of God? It takes our greedy hands being unclenched by the mercy of a generous God. It takes our iron hard will that is so resistant being melted by the candle that is the mercy of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what it takes and nothing less. Nothing less. Psalm 119. We love praying those prayers of Psalm 119. He says, Uh, In 73, give me understanding that I may keep your commandments. The understanding comes when the desire to keep them comes. You see what I'm saying? It's not merely rationality. It's not merely an intellectual game. Give me understanding that I may keep your commandments. What does it take to understand the Bible? The prerequisite to understanding the Bible actually, truly, and livingly is a desire to worship the God of the Bible and to follow Jesus Christ, who is the the sum total of all that's revealed in Scripture. That's what it takes. That's what it takes. Remember that little, there's a little saying in John chapter 7. It's one of those little sayings of Jesus that just burns in the deeper you go. He says in verses 16 and 17, the, the, the one who is willing to follow me will understand what my teaching is. It's the willingness, it's the willingness to yield yourself, to honor God. It may seem counterintuitive, but it's not illogical because God is good and we are bad. And this is the way that it works. And so this leads us to, this leads us, doesn't it, to this, to this table. Because when we embrace the truth of Jesus Christ, there is no sense in which we we now have it figured out because we did the right thing. When we embrace the truth of Jesus Christ in the gospel, it is because he bled and died in our place to, to unclench our fists and to melt our almost implacable rebellious human will. This he does by his cross and by his resurrection. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in your mercy, bring us again to your table where we can see you, where we can taste you, where we can touch you, and where we can believe and receive all that you are and all that you have done for us. Lord Jesus, be glorified in the worship of your saints. Amen. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.